Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. My name is Remy Smolinski, and I have a very special guest, very uh, special treat for us. Uh, today with me is Alan Guggenbühl, who is a practitioner, an academic uh, expert on the EU negotiations. And together we will talk about uh, the key success factors in interstate multilateral um, uh, EU negotiation, uh, EU uh, negotiations as complex as it gets, yeah? And I am very much looking forward along to, uh, to your insights, how to make such complex negotiation settings simple and how to boil it down to six. We agreed on six success factors. Uh, and I'm very excited to find out uh, what these success factors are. But first of all, Alain, would you like to uh, say a few words about yourself? Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Guten Abend, uh, everyone. Um, I'm, um, I'm French, French born in Germany, speaking from Brussels. Uh, very pleased to be uh, on board with you. Um, my, my, interest in, um, my interest in negotiation started um, after my studies, when I followed a few um, meetings uh, in the UN. Um, and I have to say there were lofty, a lot of lofty declarations, um, ready-made talking points, uh, fluffy speeches from the member states. You might say as a Frenchman, I was relatively prepared for that. However, watching those um, statements of positions, I came to build this image of, of a bunch of dormant animals with large mouths, heavy to move, innoxious or inoffensive, as long as you don't disturb them too much from what they're doing. And yes, I felt like indeed I was looking at um, at a bunch of hippos, <laughs> you might say. Um, but did you know um, that hippos uh, can actually deploy tremendous strength and speed um, outside their pond when they become they can become very, quite quite powerful? So ever since then, I've been wanting to teach to and advise any hippopotamus out there how to run the thirty kilometers an hour they're capable of running out of the water. That's the point. I wanted to convince them that diplomacy should be more than just floating and grabbing only what's available in the muddy waters of their territory. Most specifically in my company, um, we advise now on the ways to design powerful negotiation strategy in the decision-making process. You described quite well um, in diplomatic terms. I would say it's chaotic, hectic. Um, it involves 27 member states with varying positions and interests. And um, we try to create um, strategies that basically aim at influencing through negotiations. And I'm delighted to um, undertake with you today a very small safari uh, in this EU jungle. Thank you. Back to you, Remy. Thank you so much, Alain. Uh, it sounds uh, very exciting. If uh, someone has uh, not had appetite for our episode uh, uh, before then actually uh, going on a saf negotiation safari safari it's uh, it's something that everybody uh, is probably very much looking forward to and now um i've read that you've trained almost every eu presidency so far eh? i would be very interested to find out some uh, <clears throat> some intimate details in terms of their biggest successes biggest failures uh, who was the best who was the worst what is your uh, what is your, you know, in hindsight and ret retrospective, what is uh, what was the best presidency? What was the larger, the biggest success? What was the biggest failure? What do you think? Um, 
a lot of moderate failures, um, a, a handful of successes. Um, but before, and rather than pointing a few, uh, allow me to use two, share with you two criteria whereby we, I could locate them as successes or failures. Um, to be successful, I believe, any EU presidency has to manage to enforce two, like we call in negotiation theory, two types of justices. Um, they need to, to enforce a procedural justice whereby everybody's treated in a relatively equal way as a member of a club when they give them the floor, when the presidency approaches them to fetch information, to echo their interest in the compromise text. But they, they also have to add another justice, which is the distributional one, which is to share advantages um, of, of, of successive compromises for 27 member states, because these guys have to survive six months. So the rule, golden rule, is, is not always the same winners, not always the same losers. So like it's Christmas time every day, and that's the very job of a presidency. And if a presidency fails to kind of uh, have this equity or fairness, um, well, they, they, they will have resistance in the group, and the six months will, will more or less lead to um, to, to, to a high number of agreements or not. And the second criteria is, um, <laughs> is um, you succeed when you manage presidency if you are so-called Brussels-based, if the people in charge of the negotiations are, are sufficiently autonomous, independent from political pressures from their capital. And here's my answer to your questions about what's the most successful presidencies of all time we think it's the presidency which which run for six months without a government in place. <laughs> Any government with ministers saying do this, do that, achieve this. And that was a country which I happen to know quite well because I'm located in it, which at some stage in its political history was without a government for more than 500 days. We're talking indeed about Belgium. And the Belgian negotiators were free to try things out, speak to everyone and be creative. And this was the best moment of EU presence history, I would say, for those two reasons. That's very exciting because uh, one of the things, uh, one of the things that, uh, that you wrote in uh, one of your papers is, uh, you know, to be successful, you have to know what to do, right? So you have, you have to have the, a clear mandate. Uh, and uh, it seems that uh, a clear, a, a strict mandate, maybe not clear, but a very strict mandate might also uh, be um, counterproductive, you know, that would be an example of Belgium, which had a widely defined mandate, right? No constituency breathing down their backs, uh, uh, their necks, uh, and uh, still very successful. That's exciting. I'll have, I'll have to have a closer look at this. Uh, um, uh, um, I was uh, with Francesco in one of our, uh, one of our last episodes. We talked about negotiation, not only as an individual competency, but also we, we, we looked at uh, negotiation as, a, as an organizational competency, right? Uh, and we looked at the EU uh, being more or less in certain, uh, certain areas and certain institutions certainly better and certain institutions uh, a, little bit, uh, a little bit lagging behind in terms of negotiation competency. What is your uh, view in terms of negotiation competencies in the EU institutions, uh, both on the individual level eh? as well as mm -hmm. as collective competency of the organization 
Apparently, it must not be perfect because they keep on uh, getting getting you uh, <laughs> inviting you to give them trainings, right? <laughs> so, uh, what is uh, what is your assessment after all these years uh, working with so many EU um, uh, EU officials? Um, well, vast question. Um, I would I would point at um, three or four. Let me say four. Uh, for such competencies, and they will, they will, they will. You'll see they'll mingle the individuals and the organisations, uh, but it's a kind of a joint effectiveness, joint efficiency. I would call um, the first set of competencies is, is crucial. Is the importance of unwritten rules? Uh, the textbook says something. The treaty says something. Uh, there's a voting procedure, and then on the ground, something totally different happens, like the Monty Pythons would say in some of their circuses. Um, one example, if you expect to come to the meetings and, and speak in the microphone and being listened at, you're totally wrong, because most of the time it's too late. The counterparts will be doing something totally different again. A lot has been pre-cooked already. Everybody knows what you're going to say anyway. Things have been bargained already somehow before you speak. And even worse, Remy, I've seen situations where the report on the minutes of the meeting to about to take place was ready before the meeting itself. Because roughly we know there's a routine. We know what will come out of, of, of Greece on the environment or from France on energy. There, there are no surprises. So if you count only on those textbooks, rules and procedure, uh, you, you'll be quite surprised. Um, and you see how, how it merges institutions, the rules of prestige of the body and the individuals as, as a functioning agent. Um, the second competence, I would say, is also crucial. Um, and it boils back to the very nature of negotiations in the EU. Um, you are dealing with people holding a mandate to negotiate. And who says, speaks about mandates, speaks about national institutions. Instructions. So national instructions are prepared home. And the competency I would advise people to have is to have a horizontal vision as opposed to a tunnel vision. Because you need to be able to sacrifice something somewhere for the sake of gaining a benefit elsewhere. And that you can't do if you have your head down in just your file. We've seen that recently to negotiate environment. You have to know what trade-offs you can do in energy, transport, or regional policy, or fundamental rights, or the rule of law, if you see my point, um, or vice versa. So putting your house in order is the second competency, I would say, and choose your, choose your battle. The third one, and we refer to for the presidency, um, it's the same for that after negotiators. I would advocate them to have the appropriate margin of maneuver and autonomy to use the corridors to use the green rooms, to speak to everyone, to answer to this, could you live with that? Okay, have a rough idea, rather than to depend fully on your authority. Because if you do that, you, you, you won't be able to influence an inch the entire process. And the more you're open, approaching people and ready to answer, to investigate things, the more the others will turn to you. I mean, it's the basic building of confidence process um, that will take place. Last but not least, like in any international negotiation, you know that, Remy, more than I do, you need physical preparedness, technical preparedness, and political preparedness. So prepare yourself, if you go to Brussels to negotiate, to be harassed by the others, 
by the chair, by the leader of the coalitions. If you say, uh, I want this, and you don't justify it, if you speak too long, if you don't have any alternative proposal, if you say, yet, no, nine, that is not enough. They will not let you out of the hook. And if you simply behave like a robot, well, again, people will not want to speak to you or to share information. So the clock will be stopped. And long nights, you will need to spend long nights, but this is where the deals are basically crafted. Okay. Hope that makes some sense about not scaring too much our viewers, but voila, the reality of the preparation means these four elements in particular. Mm -hmm. So let me summarize briefly uh, uh, physical, technical, political preparedness, preparation, uh, autonomy. Uh, in a network you mentioned uh, horizontal versus tunnel vision and knowledge of unwritten rules uh, combined with the willingness to uh, to do the corridor diplomacy which one of these competencies do you believe is uh, um, is the the largest asset where you have almost where you're unemployed in terms of your training your trainings where you don't have to do much right? and which of uh, which of those competencies that you do you have to focus the most in terms of uh, uh, bringing people um, uh, or uh, teaching people, you know, how to do certain things in a particular way. Well, thank you for that. I mean, uh, in negotiation, we have a tendency to approach um, the subject matter from the angle of the, of the procedure or the problem or essentially. Whereas I advocate usually to look at another facet, which is the role of the persons, the people, the individuals. Um, and, and that's what I would say, like, this is where lies the biggest challenge for officials or diplomats who are not used to socialize, to exchange things that they bound by the rules, by cultural preference of the organization. Information is very often power. So it, it's, it's feeling comfortable in this world where basically eight, 80 percent of the time needed to come to an agreement we checked 80% roughly all the time needed is spent in the corridors. Only 20% in the meeting room, which, which gives you a sense of the challenge if you're not familiar from, from your either cultural organization or your background um, into that. And the most easier one is, okay, voting procedure, I, I have uh, 15 votes to express, this is okay. For that matter, they're, they're ready. But it's really the people's uh, angle, um, which is the, the most um, challenging bits. Mm -hmm. That's very surprising, I must admit, Alain. Um, uh, you surprised me with your choice because uh, I thought uh, that if there is there is an element of diplomacy that uh, that diplomats must possess or at least must be proficient at, uh, that would be uh, winning people, right? I mean, uh, that's their business. It's not only rules. Uh, uh, it's not only regulations. It's not only it's not only about uh, being a technocrat. It's about being uh, uh, being you know like uh, like uh, uh, great diplomats from the past, right? They were also uh, charming individuals. Uh, they were also individuals who were able to uh, to win people, right? People, not only win bad diplomatic battles, to be eloquent and so on. So I must admit, I'm uh, I'm a bit surprised by your choice, but that also uh, <clears throat> that also um, uh, signifies, you know, the importance of emphasizing this relational dimension almost in every negotiation. We tend to we typically tend to focus on the substance and forget about that it's ultimately the people who make decisions, right? Um, you're right. I have to specify that when we speak about national representatives, 
is in EU negotiations, we, we're talking about people going in, in roughly 10,000 meetings a year. And within these 10,000 meetings a year, you have a few dozens from the ministers themselves. And you have, um, you have like 80 meetings from the ambassadors themselves. And then you have thousands from representatives of a lower level, people working in Brussels, staying in Brussels. And then you have people flying in from the capitals. So that makes four categories where, you know, I'd like, to, I, I would need to enter into some, some specificities, but, but, but the main challenge, if you allow me then to bounce on, on what you said, Remy, the main challenge for all of them then is to have a sufficient knowledge, awareness of the cultural differences when it comes to use those corridors. How much transparent should the entire thing be? Should you be discussing business after working hours? Should you accept the invitation of the Finnish representative to go and meet him or her in the sauna of the embassy? All that uh, is part of the unwritten rules again. So this is the, the two worlds merging. Um, and the more, the more you attend those meetings, the more you're familiar, not so much with the socialization, brutally speaking, but with those personal preference and you can adapt and use that to your advantage. These are the good negotiators using the socialization for strategic purpose, not to become friends, but for strategic purpose to influence the others. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Alam, for, um, <clears throat> for these insights. Um, I liked, uh, I liked the, the introduction of your paper, uh, which, uh, which said that um, multilateral EU negotiations can be compared to a group dance, which is observed by, uh, uh, by diverse, uh, diverse judges, right? Some of them are located in different places, but there is one overall judge which looks at, uh, at how, uh, uh, how, uh, how the group of 20, uh, 27 dance, whereas uh, individual judges observe their own uh, their own dancing couples or units, right? So, uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, I like this analogy a lot, and uh, we know that in negotiation education, we very often compare uh, compare the process that we analyze or look at with dancing. Yeah? And I was wondering uh, about the success factors uh, that you would uh, that you would uh, um, uh, recommend or that you were able to um, distill and extract based on your on the analysis of I don't know hundreds, thousands of uh, uh, of EU EU negotiation processes. Uh, would you mind sharing your insights uh, with us? What it means to negotiate well? What it means to dance group dance well in the context of uh, EU multilateral negotiations? <laughs> I'm glad to, Remy. Oh, yes, of course. Um, thank you for that. Um, the first thing I would say is, is is avoid stepping on your neighbors or your partners' toes. Um, which in negotiation means respect the other, right? Would be interested with more time to <laughs> elucidate a bit that. Um, but allow me to, to, to point out those six factors which indeed um, um, I, 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 I have in mind. Um, I'd be interested to have you react on, 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 on this listing, uh, of course. Um, the, the, the first one might be uh, quite uh, evident and, 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 and hot water water rather for everyone um, it's a plan things and what you expect to win um, so having a hierarchy of your interests having a saliency of interest what is more important than something else it's not always easy yeah if, if you look at legislative matters red lines ready trade-offs ready alternatives ready 
Okay? And very important, your minimum level of satisfaction. Your minimum level of satisfaction and how much frustration can you afford at the end of the day? Because you're going to be frustrated. You're not going to have what you wanted in the first place. Some will have it, have more, dance better. Um, but you, you have to decide that from the outset to prepare the next negotiation and then the next negotiation. But this level of satisfaction, minimum one, is, is crucial to me. And that's back to the preparation, the coordination internally um, back in the, the, the ministries. The second is to bounce back off on the discussion on on socialization is, is what um, negotiation theory calls coalescence. Let's call this coalition building, which are two types. We talked about, um, or we haven't talked about, but building tactical coalitions with delegations sharing your positions. We call them like-minded delegations. Um, and also coalitions with all the other actors influencing the negotiators, all other stakeholders, NGOs, forces in the European Parliament, uh, European national associations, um, large lobbying industrial groups, among others. Having said that, <laughs> once you have prepared everything, <laughs> unfortunately, Remy, unfortunately, the reality bites in the sense that they might well cheat you. There is no sacred commitment or, or engagement binding those parties to whatever they have told you when building coalitions. There is no such thing, for example, as a permanent coalition of member states always voting the same thing. So coalition building, yes, this is what I had to say, tactical. <laughs> Be ready to um, have the rats leave the ship, literally. Um, the third factor is, um, again, the autonomy, but with another twist, if you allow me. Um, it's the autonomy of the negotiator with a sufficient margin of maneuver, flexibility to operate in Brussels with the other delegations. But it's a, two, it's a double autonomy in the sense that I think um, delegations successful have also negotiated going back to their capital and say, listen, <laughs> you have instructed me to do this. It seems it's not possible. I have managed to secure this in Brussels. I urge you to consider what is on the table. So this is a wonderful two-way stream we see in EU diplomacy, which you hardly see every anywhere else. This these two ways of the um, of the negotiators. Um, the fourth one is <laughs> when EU negotiations are led, guided, piloted by two main institutional actors, which is the presidency we talked about. And it's the European Commission. You might say the European Commission doesn't vote, but the European Commission shares the same objective as the, the presidency. They want a deal. This is why they make a proposal. They want something. And these two will be drafting a compromise text. And you have to know what they do. And they have to hear you. They have to mirror your interests. So you have to lobby them more than anybody else. So the fourth factor is invest in the, the leaders. Um, of um, the negotiation. The fifth one is, um, if, if we look back at the unwritten rules, the fifth factor is um, being familiar with the informality of things. That means three actions in particular. You have to be available to exchange after hours, after the meeting. You have to socialize actively. 
and you have to be in as many WhatsApp groups as possible <laughs> to exchange things because it's very dynamic. It's moved just like that, and you have to, again, have a flexible mandate, know your stuff, know the others, and know what to rec what to sell back to your capital. If you manage this, you, you'll, you'll be quite effective. Last one, back to something I said, uh, cultural awareness, or like the British used to say, used to say, or they still do, sorry, acclimatization. Um, let me find two or three situations where um, you should really wonder whether this is not a cultural pattern, a cultural difference. First, is your counterpart free to discuss, move, and accept your offers? Or does your counterpart have to follow strict, centralized instructions without authority to move, first having to report, first having to get a green light? If they are in a cultural system like that, don't bother. <laughs> don't bother offering them something. Yeah, because spend some good time, but don't expect anything. Crucial to know because you have to manage your resources. Second, social practices. Um, do they share information? Um, are they sufficiently transparent? Do they send and trust young diplomats, for example? Young female diplomats. Some countries do, some don't. Now, is this an issue before you engage really into negotiating? Um, third, what about communication preferences? <laughs> um, what about the role of emotions? What about people who talk more than the others? What about the number of kisses, Remy, when you go and greet people in Brussels? One, two, three, four? Men, do men give each other's kisses? Well, if you know that, you're in a better position to avoid cross-cultural accidents, to be credible and to respect the other, I believe. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, uh, Alan, for sharing these uh, six uh, key success factors. Uh, I was, uh, <clears throat> since you've called out uh, for, uh, for, for my opinion, I was I've been, uh, listening very carefully and also read your paper, of course, uh, and uh, very much enjoyed it. Uh, um, and some of them, some of them are um, context independent, right? So we know in terms of preparation, right? It's something that uh, uh, that we typically teach also um, in political or business context or legal context. You know, you know your limits, know your interests, know your preferences, trade-offs, and red lines, and so on. Yeah. Some of them are super specific in the context of uh, of, of of the EU, right? Uh, I was thinking uh, along. Uh, I was thinking about. Uh, um, in, in, in this spectrum of key success factors, right? To what extent or which one of them would include uh, things like um, negotiation craftsmanship? So knowing what to say and when to say, uh, when to say it to whom, knowing negotiation methods, having negotiation intelligence, right? I have a feeling that it's, uh, it's, um, it's, um, in between many of those, uh, it's. Uh, but uh, how important do you think um, is the knowledge of negotiation as a subject matter? Eh? Um, in a sense that you know, to what extent it is important that these representatives, national representatives, before they go on and represent their countries in a multilateral EU context, that they first book you and your training, you know, to get uh, get prepared and. Uh, become good negotiator for negotiators first before they become EU negotiators. What do you think about that, Alan? Oh, thank you, Remy. I think it is a crucial, and I'm going just to give you uh, one example of how crucial it is for the EU, the planet, the galaxy, and the universe, and even beyond. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, you see the dimension. Um, in the sense that you 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 might be like you rightly point out, bogged down into so many different facets of the negotiation phenomenon, uh, procedural, um, uh, process-related, the, the people. Um, and if you're a technician and a bureaucrat, you will come with what is often looks like um, the lowest possible common denominator, um, which you know makes sense for voila, little arrangements, accommodations. Um, and I believe the science of negotiation should not <laughs> be restricted to finding as a compromise the lowest possible common denominator. Um, to be more, 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 more honest, I don't think we, 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 we can afford any longer today only diplomatic compromises, which are not so ambitious, but keeps everybody sufficiently happy over six months, like we talked about. But we have a series of crises. We have a series of expectations from the citizens. Um, we, we can't afford uh, a, a lukewarm, uh, half-baked compromise any longer, I think. And then another reason why we can't and why we really need, together with these negotiators, think to increase the pie, as we say, um, not just stick to the compromise of the lowest um, possible value, but the, the EU is going to get larger. And the variety, the magnitude of differences between member states is going to be huge. I don't need to expand. But taking a decision to progress, to be the avant-garde of, of, of environmental protection, uh, of social protection, is going to be more difficult um, in the decades to come, for obvious reasons. So we really have to think about this compromise building and move from a purely diplomatic, bureaucratic one into a more citizen state, a, a European format, so to say, which links the, the objective of the EU in essence and not lose out the objective, the priorities of the EU and its citizens. I know that with I my... With my like yeah. a politician now. I'm sorry, I speak like a politician. <laughs> Vote for my, yes. No, it's a very, very interesting point along, uh, that you've um, uh, that you've uh, that you've mentioned. So let me squeeze in a, a, a question uh, which uh, has popped uh, popped up in my mind. So, how can we do this without sacrificing some of the national autonomy? Right. I mean, I know this this question uh, moves a little bit beyond the negotiation context, but there is still a fair bit of. Uh, uh, negotiation tactic uh, and strategy in it, right? So the more participants, you know, beyond 27, yeah, the more diverse the interest in the group yeah, and the more difficult becomes to come down to a common denominator. So if the challenges become more pressing, such as, for example, environment, like you mentioned, or uh, war, right? Um, uh, the conflict in the Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine, yeah? Um, we need to somehow figure out a negotiation mechanism that uh, does not does not focus on the least common denominator, but on, for, on the most on the highest impact. Yeah? So, how can we move from the co least common denominator approach that we seem to be, you know, if we, see, we seem to be pursuing for I don't know 40, 60 years uh, at least in the, in, the, in the past of the EU institutions uh, to something to making EU more impactful? Um, mm -hmm. Is it necessary to somehow sacrifice some of uh, some of the national autonomy, or do you believe it's possible to to pursue within the given structures? 
Wow, um, fascinating question, Remy. Thank you. Um, a lot of people find as a solution uh, to to um, to your conundrum, uh, the conundrum you raise, um, find the 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 solution to reduce the the autonomy of member states, which you raised, um, and 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 that means more qualified majority voting, less unanimity um, to impose things. Of course, it makes sense. <laughs> Technically, it makes sense. But politically, you know that as much as I do. I mean, negotiating one thing is something, but then, then the object you've negotiated needs to be implemented and enforced. And if it's not enforced, accepted by the end users, then you failed, I believe, the negotiation. That pattern has to be factored in from the start, I believe. So I, was, I would think about something else. I would think about great leaders rather than leaders by default. Uh, again, arrangement, lowest common denominator, somebody who would not make, make be too noisy or too federalist or whatever. These leaders, we've seen them in the history of European integration. And whenever we had a landmark um, uh, actor like that, you saw the result into the capacity, into the gender and in the support of the EU. So that, that's one thing. And then the second one, um, and that's linked to my first point, it's a bit bold, but I have this idea, which is called transparency <laughs> in a democratic system. And it goes like that. What if, um, what if in every member state, in every region or province of every member state, in every municipality, every constituency, commune, village, each political party would have one platform of the same position. On environment, we believe this. On social protection, we mean this. On trade, we want this, not that. And you defend one platform anywhere. European elections, the leaders you propose to the European Commission presidency, whatever. And you do that. The parliamentarians you appoint, you elect, will defend that. The socialist commissioner will defend the same thing. And in the Council of Ministers, the country having the governing, the ruling majority will defend that. We know, and you discuss <laughs> the interests without hiding, and you have the support of the people. I believe this is the only way to secure good agreements and supported agreements. Thank you, Alain, for your uh, for your wise words. Uh, um, I very much enjoyed it. So, um, uh, picking up on the great on, on great leaders, my last question is always about great negotiators. Uh, so, what are your um, what, are, what are your favorites in terms of historical or contemporary negotiators? Uh, um, who would you uh, who would you uh, pick and choose as a role model, uh, and why? <laughs> he has to be French, of course, huh? <laughs> Yes, 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 of course. Um, well, well, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll pick one, but just to make the link with what we were discussing and, and negotiation theory, um, if, if I look at the theory, the competences and skills of negotiators, some of them are empathy, putting yourself in the shoes of the other, play the devil's advocate um, against your own arguments, and I believe one negotiator in history truly personified all that, having literally put himself in the shoes of his opponents, <laughs> rally his cause to save his head, not just once, twice, five times. His name is Talleyrand. He managed to become prince, a bishop, a revolutionary, um, um, a minister several times, and even an ambassador. Figure that, Remy. 
Um, it all starts, if I remember correctly, by him becoming a young bishop. Then he's excommunicated. That's in the um, he he was he was appointed ambassador in eighteen thirty. But figure that he he becomes bishop. He's excommunicated because he was acting during the French Revolution. He was elected in the French Assembly of the revolutionary body. He was presided the assembly, and he wanted to seize the church's wealth and assets. So the church said, no, no way. Then he went on exile to the US. Imagine that. Then he comes back. He becomes minister. Then he plots to overthrow the regime, to put whom in place? Napoleon himself, a new emperor who will crown himself, himself, not the pope. So no need for the church anymore. Fascinating. Um, he will sign for Napoleon peace treaties. He will recommend to Napoleon to have a strategic alliance marriage <laughs> with Austria, with Marie-Louise d'Autriche. He privately, then parallel to that, he plots against Napoleon. Um, he advises Russia not to sign any alliance with France, but to wait because the emperor, he thinks, will collapse. Um, he asked the Tsar, the Tsar of Russia, support me in reinstating the former royal family. So the former royal of the Bourbon comes back. He becomes a minister of this new family. And after this one is gone, <laughs> he becomes an ambassador. It's just fascinating. And again, um, oh yes, and the best of all, the best of all in negotiation, his table, his table was the best in Paris. And he, Remy, he had so many, so many sentimental relations with the partners of his targets. So back to socialization for a purpose, right? So he, he's the best for me, if you ask me, because he materialized the recommendation of negotiation theory, which is to, to know your counterparts' interests and accommodate them to your own plan. It's fantastic. Hello, thank you so much for sharing this. It seems that, you know, if we if we are to draw a conclusion, it's probably too far reaching. But uh, uh, to become a great negotiator, you have to party hard. <laughs> you have to party like Talimon. Uh, Alain, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, thank you so much uh, um, uh, to the listeners out there, to the watchers, uh, to the followers. Uh, please you. stay tuned for our next podcast on negotiation. And until then... All the best in your negotiations. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone.